All right. Um, well, if you are not lining up to go downstairs, I invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. So we are in the book of James, and James is all about answering the question, what does it look like to live the Christian faith? Now, isn't that something that we all want to know? Like, what does it look like to be a Christian? And perhaps you're here today and you're checking out the Christian faith. Well, this letter is written for the purpose of helping us understand what kind of effect does our faith have on our life? How does God's grace that, that saves us, how does it transform us? And James wants us to know that our faith is meant to be visible, meaning it's meant to be evident within our actions. And we might say, well, what kind of actions? Well, James doesn't cover everything, but in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, so the very end of chapter 1, James gives us not only the outline of the book, but he tells us three effects that our faith is to have on our life. He says it's to affect how we speak, how we serve the poor, and how we live out in holiness. Now, last week, we began chapter 2. And in chapter 2, James dresses how we are to treat one another, specifically the poor. And if you remember, the poor is really this broad word for, for looking at those who, who are different, a minority. And so James is addressing how is it that we're to love one another? How is it that we love those who, either, who even externally look different than us? And what he wants us to know is that Christianity is not a religion about exercising power and control over other people. We're not about coercion and manipulation and oppression. James wants us to know that we're not to practice any form of partiality, favoritism, or discrimination. In fact, treating others based upon external factors like economics, race, or disabilities is completely at odds with the Christian faith. As Christians, we've been saved that we would love one another. And, that's we, and it's as we love one another that we get to show the world what life looks like under the rule of King Jesus, our Savior. When our faith is visible, God's kingdom is visible here on earth. And so today we're going to look at how, part, <clears throat> how partiality, favoritism, and discrimination opposes the royal law of the kingdom that we are to love one another. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand, and we're going to read chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. One thing we do here at Timberline is we stand at the reading of the Word. We do this because we believe God's Word is inspired, comes with His full authority for the purpose of equipping us, of teaching us, training us, rebuking us, and correcting us. And so let's look at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, and we, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the Bible, and particularly right now, we thank you for the book of James. Lord, this is a book bent on helping us know what it looks like to live the Christian faith. It's helping us know what your spirit is doing within, within us, how you're transforming us, how you're leading us to live as followers of you. And Lord, we see that because of our faith in you, we are to love as you have loved us. And I pray that we as a church would demonstrate that love. The love that you have shown through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. May your love permeate within our lives and may it be evident in all that we do. May we show love. May we show others your love by being gracious, and by being merciful. May every relationship we are in be marked and shaped by the gospel of love and grace that you have given us. Lord, I pray that as we, as we look at, at partiality, favoritism, discrimination, Lord, help us to see the evil within these sins. Help us to see how these sins oppose your royal law that we're to love others. Lord, help us to understand Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, convict us, and change us. That we would truly live as you have called us to, as your people. In your name, Jesus, amen. Y'all may be seated. So uh, we're going to walk through our passage. And and what we're going to see today is that we are to love one another without partiality because of how God has loved us. And so we're going to begin with looking at what the law of the kingdom is. And we're going to see love is the law of the kingdom, meaning love is the law of God's kingdom. In verse 8, we read the words royal law. So this refers to, to the law of God's kingdom. And so what is that law? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we just pause here for a moment, just notice a couple things. At the very end of verse 8, he says, you are doing well if you love others this way. So the royal law is commended by God. Now notice in verse 9, we have a contrasting verse. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James holds these up. If you follow the royal law, you're doing well, but if you do partiality, you are sinning, and that is, and you are transgressing God's law. James wants us to see that partiality is at odds with loving others, meaning you cannot love others and practice partiality at the same time. It's either one or the other. But why? Why is it one or the other? Because partiality, favoritism, discrimination, that's not about loving others, that's actually loving yourself. You see, the opposite of, of loving others is not necessarily anger or hatred, but it's, it's self-love, it's selfishness. Partiality treats others based upon external factors, things like economic status, social status, physical disabilities, race, and a host of other things. Partiality says, if you benefit me, I can use you. But if you cannot, then I don't need you. But the royal law of the kingdom is about loving one another regardless of their ability to benefit us. And we'll come back to that later. But first, James is going to help us see that this the sin of partiality is not a trivial matter. It has no place within the church. And, and I, hope, I hope as we go through this that you'll see 
just as I have seen, that, that I, have, I have threads of this partiality that runs in my life at times. Like th- this is something that I'm just going to say every single one of us faces, and if you're a parent, your children are being indoctrinated in this every single day at school. And so we need to be aware of this. And so my prayer is that God would convict us. God would show us just where these things are beginning to take place in our life. That we would confess them. And that we would be known for our love. So James gives us a principle in verse 10. And the principle is to break one law is to break all the laws. Verse 10, James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. So imagine maybe your, your child throws a rock through a window of your house, which would never happen. I can tell you personal stories. Um, and, and it puts a hole maybe like right through the bottom right-hand corner of the window. And of course, they don't tell you anything about it. So later you find it, and what do you say? Why didn't you tell me you broke a window? Now imagine if they responded this way. I only put one hole in it. It's not a big deal. The rest of the window is completely usable. But the truth is, that one hole has compromised the whole window, and therefore it's broken, and the whole thing must be replaced. This is what happens when we break God's law. To fail in keeping one part of God's law is to fail at every point. And if we go to verse 11, James wants to illustrate this. He wants us to not only, he's not only going to illustrate it, but he's going to really take us into the ugliness and the depths of, of partiality and why it is such uh, a sin at odds with the law of the kingdom. And in this illustration, he's going to show that partiality is a result of breaking the royal law. In verse 11, uh, James refers to two commandments that are found in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Adultery is the seventh, murder is the sixth. And so he's basically saying, well, if, if you don't murder, but you commit, or if you don't commit adultery, but if you murder, you're still a transgressor. And maybe it's best for us if we try to think of this as a courtroom scene. Imagine someone has been convicted of murder, and before they're being sentenced, they ask if they can address the court. And when they do, they explain, that all, they explain all the good things that they've done in their life. They explain how they've raised their children, how they've worked hard, provided for their family, never cheated on, on his spouse. And then he says, the only bad thing I've done is, is really murder this person. Does not all the good that I have done, does that not outweigh this one bad deed? And of course, what is the answer? No. It'd be unjust to overlook such a transgression. So, so what is James' point? His point is, if we play favorites, if we're discriminating against one another, if we're playing partiality, we're, we're, tra- we're transgressors. We're also breaking God's law. But why is it then, in the verse before, in verse 10, that we're guilty of breaking all of God's law? Like, why, why is that the case? Why is that when we, we play the sin of partiality and favoritism, that that's not just breaking one of God's law, but it's breaking everything that he gives us? Well, I, th- I think we find the answer if we were to go back and look at what Jesus said in Matthew 22. And in Matthew 22, Jesus summarizes the, ro- the, the law of God. And, and, he, and, he, and he says, first we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then second he says, we're to love one another as ourselves. And the two, what he shows, are intricately bound together. The evidence of our loving God is that we love one another. We only truly love one another 
with this others-focused love if we love God. So to break the royal law, then, of loving others is to break all of God's law if they can all be summed up as loving one another. Does that make sense? If all of God's law is under the bracket, love one another, if you break any part of it, you've broken everything. Because in God's kingdom, love is what rules in that kingdom. So to break His command is to break every law that He's given us. So you're one form of partiality, of favoritism, of discrimination has made you a transgressor before God and guilty of His wrath. Now you might say, that's really strict, right? Like that feels really strict. I do one thing and I'm guilty of everything, and that's, that's the point, that no one is perfect. That's exactly what James wants us to see here. The truth of Scripture is that because of sin, every person is guilty before God. There's no one righteous. You're not righteous. I'm not righteous. There's no one here whose emotions, thoughts, words, and actions measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. His standard is way higher than what anything we could ever reach. And from cover to cover in the Bible, we see that humanity is sinful. And we always fall short of God's law. Before Israel actually goes into the promised land, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is preparing God's people to go into the promised land. This is what Moses says. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments. He reminds them of what they're supposed to do. And then in Deuteronomy 31, this is what he says. I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Moses tells you, like, this, this law that you're given, you're not going to be able to keep it. We can't keep God's law. We need to know this. We were never meant to merit God's favor through law keeping you can't do it so if you're here and you're going well i'm a pretty good person i can do this i can do this. it doesn't matter we all fall short we're not intended to be able to merit his favor through our obedience we cannot keep god's favor through law keeping this is why god sends his son jesus christ this is why he sends him to the cross that he would die for us and that he would live the perfect life that we cannot live We'll come back to that more. But I think there's more to this point, this illustration, than just the fact that he's wanting us to see that no one can keep God's law. We're all guilty. I think there's more to what he's getting at. And there's, he wants us to see that partiality, one, is at the same level of murder and adultery. And I know that can sound kind of extreme, but, but he wants us to see that partiality is not something we can excuse. See, last week we talked about how, we're to, how often we greet some people, like when they come into church or at work, we greet some people, but we just happen not to usually greet these other people. How we're free for certain people when they ask us, hey, can you help us with something? Well, sure, I can help you. But when these other people ask us, we just, we seem to be busy whenever they ask us. And in today's culture, I think we, hi we hide behind the phrase, I'm busy in order to explain why we're not able to help certain people. Certain people like the poor. Certain people who are different than us. 
And yet we always seem to have time to do the very things that we want to do. So James is, is wanting us to see that just as murder and adultery is unloving toward one another, so is partiality. Just as when we commit these, we're committing acts of, of unlove towards others and, and self-love towards us, so is partiality. He's placing it on the same level. But you might still say, but that's kind of extreme, right? Okay, I get that they're all acts of being unloving towards one another, but can we really say that, that showing favoritism and partiality and discrimination, is it the same as murder and adultery? Like does, does that feel weird to you? Does that feel like it rubs a little bit? Like, it does to me, and, and as I was studying this, I was just kept going, like, how does this work? Like, why those sins? Like, why not, why not bring up if you steal from someone? You know, like, I, I can track with that. Like, that doesn't seem, like, as severe as, as murder or covetousness. Maybe you just like what your neighbor has. But he's driving it home and saying, no, 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 we need to see it in light of murder and adultery. And so here's the reason, because partiality is at the very heart of murder and adultery. So, so that's what we're going to look at now for a few moments. First, if we're going to understand this, we need to remember what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount in, James, in Matthew chapter 5. So I encourage you, go read Matthew 5 later. But in Matthew 5, Jesus talks about murder, and he talks about adultery. And he says that if you are angry with someone, then you've committed murder within your heart. See, what Jesus is teaching is that, that we're not just worried about the outward action, we're worried about the inward action that causes the outward action. So if we have anger within us, anger towards someone else, we're actually guilty of murder. And then he says the same with adultery. Adultery is just not the actual physical act of being with someone else other than your spouse. But if you lust after someone else, you've committed adultery. So we could raise our hands. Who's committed adultery and murder in here, right? This is when we do interaction and everyone would raise their hands. And yet we still feel a little awkward like I murdered someone. But according to God's word, thank you for grabbing Chris Gorman's arm. Yes, thank you. Your father is here. I saw that. This is good. It's Q&A time after service with the Gorman parents. Um, okay, but what's the connection with partiality? Okay, so I get anger is at the root of murder and, and lust is at the root of, of adultery. But how does partiality work within anger and lust? So we'll start with murder. We'll start with anger. Those who I'm angry with, I discriminate against. Those who I'm angry against, I do not give favor. Think about the last time you fought with your wife, your husband, someone. Were you giving them favor right at that moment, or did you avoid them? Were you inclined to love them and do all that you, or, you know, and, and inclined to, to shower grace upon them, or did you withdraw? We often withdraw, right? We're, we're not giving fav favor when we're mad and we're angry. We don't have to look far to see this happen all around us in our culture. Our culture has raised the banner that black lives matter, white lives matter, every life matters. We see racism alive and well here in America. White police officers are regularly accused of profiling black men. Why? Because of discrimination, because of partiality. There have been riots, murder, and war because of the sin of partiality. And we don't have to go very, back, go very far back in history to see this. 
we could look present day, but if we just look back a little bit, I'm going to read a letter from Martin Luther King, a letter that he wrote from Birmingham jail. I just want you to think. Now, as I read this, everything that comes out of this comes from the sin of partiality. We must see it through that lens. This is what Martin Luther King says. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told Fun Town is closed to colored children, and you see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes a derogatory word and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and your mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro con living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a, de a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable patience. That's our history. That's what marks America. We have partiality and favoritism and discrimination running deep within our culture. It is all around us. And partiality dehumanizes people. We cannot downplay the danger of this sin. We cannot. It is because of this sin that people hate, strongly dislike the poor, the minority, the alien. Rather than seeking to understand the poor, we blame them for their own circumstances. They see them as lesser people. They see them as a drain on society. They see them as people we'd be better without. Isn't that true? Haven't you seen that? I pulled up to a street corner the other day. A particular homeless person, he, he's always at this corner. You, if you live here, you know, there's certain people in certain corners. He moves well. He's looks more than capable in working and he had a really nice new jacket on i mean i see him a lot in this i've never seen him in this jacket and it it was really nice and i i went in my head i said are you kidding me like get a job like like get a job like you got it like you're, you're capable 
as soon as I said that, James 2 just comes flooding in. I'm sitting there going, I'm guilty right here. This is it. I'm looking at externals, and I act like I know this guy. I know why he's at that corner. I know nothing about him. And even if I did, what does the gospel call me to do but to love and to give mercy? We practice favoritism. We're guilty. We have to know that. You can play around with the words, I'm busy, but we need to come to the heart that James is poking at something here. He's equating partiality to the very act of murder, to the very act of adultery, because because it is that heinous of a sin. So let's now look at adultery. How does partiality work with adultery? Because maybe you're here and you say, look, I don't avoid the poor. I don't, av- I don't hate them. I, I don't do what you just said. Great. It's wonderful. So how does partiality work with lust? Well, those whom I lust after, I'm partial towards. Partiality inclines me to be more helpful and engage with those who are like me. With those I find attractive. Men, men hear this. When we lust after a woman, you will be more poor, partial towards that woman. You will play favoritism towards her. You will spend more time with her. You will help her more than you help others. You are moving towards adultery at that moment. According to Matthew and Jesus, we've committed adultery in the heart. You see, lust leads to partiality, and partiality leads to adultery. So the point is, what I find attractive, what entices my lust, I'm partial towards. I have time for. I have money for. I have, I have desire for that which entices me. I mean, is that not true? The hobbies you have, we make time for. Why? Because we like them. They entice us. We like doing it. The people that that we love to gravitate towards and we spend time with, I always have time for them. Why? Because they make me feel good about myself. Because I enjoy them. But for that which is not attractive, that which does not benefit me, I, I simply don't have time for. You see, James does not randomly choose murder and adultery to illustrate the heinousness of partiality. His point is that partiality is at the heart of these two sins. We either avoid helping the poor, those who are economically poor, special needs, minorities, the alien, the the orphan, the widow, those who are different with us, either because we hate them or because of our lust for something else, we just simply avoid them. I don't have money, I don't have time for that because my heart is over here. So it's in a nutshell, it's because we're, Because we love ourselves more than we love others. You see, this is what James is doing. Is we we either keep the royal law, which we love others as we love ourselves, or we violate that royal law because we only love ourselves. And thus we become partial and favor and discriminatory. So I ask you, are you guilty? Are you, are you guilty? Like we are, right? Partiality, it, it's, like, it's like boiling a frog in water. <laughs> it sounded so much better when I was writing it, but when I say it, it sounds so dumb. Um, but, but it's true. At, at first, everything seems okay, right? The frog doesn't jump out. It's like, oh, it's, it's nice. The water's good. It's just getting a little warmer. 
but slowly the heat consumes the frog and he dies. We can't excuse this sin. We, we can't play around with it. We can't trivialize it. We can't, we can't just be in this water of partiality that fills our culture and go, I, I'm okay. I'm not murdering someone. I'm not, I'm not doing these other things. Like, like, like I'm morally pretty good. I, I can easily find a few other people that I have better morals than. And what we do is we're just cooking ourselves in this, this culture of partiality. It desires to consume us so that every action is about us, not about loving others. So what does James call us to do? This is where, this is where we get to the better news. <laughs> Hopefully there's this weight kind of lifts a little bit right now from this room. Um, but I don't really want it to lift too much because I think we are to feel it. But we have this command in verse 12. We're to speak and act in accordance with the law of liberty. So what does James mean? James mean speak and act in accordance with the law of liberty. What is this law of liberty? Well, I, I think it's the same as the royal law. We're called to love others as ourselves. So why does he call it the law of liberty? liberty? Why doesn't he just call it the royal law? Because we can only speak and act in accordance with it when we have been freed from the power of sin by the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. You see, what James is doing here is he's bringing us right back to the gospel. In Galatians chapter 5, this is what Paul says about our salvation. So just think about the terms that he uses here. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What does that mean? To love yourself. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So James is, or Paul is talking about the gospel, and he says, we've been called to freedom. Freedom so that we don't just serve our flesh, love ourselves, do what we want. But now we can actually love other people. We can actually serve them and love them without regard for how they benefit us, but for their good. If you trace it and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are free from the power of sin. Do you know that? Is that you? Do you know that you're free from the power of sin? Now, being freed from the power of sin doesn't mean we're freed from the presence of sin. We still struggle, right? And we'll struggle with sin until Christ comes back. So what does it mean? So what does this mean in light of James? He wants us to see, see that King Jesus has freed us from self-love. He has freed us from looking at ourselves. He has freed us from anger and lust. He has freed us from judging others based upon externals. He has freed us from thinking that we should only spend our money and our time on that which benefits me. Let me ask you, do you live as though you're free? Like this is a, we are free people. We're no longer controlled by the sin of self-love. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with it, but we're not controlled by it. Because of the gospel, we're free to love others. We're free to help the poor, the alien, the stranger, the orphan, the widow, disabled. We're free to serve others as we love ourselves. And when we love this way, we reveal the kingdom of God. We reveal our King, Jesus. Do you know that? When we love in a way that's for the good of others versus how does everything benefit me? That's when we show people the kingdom. That's when we show people who our king is. Because isn't that what he did for us? I mean, let, let's go to 1 John. I encourage you, look, look at last week's sermon if you weren't here. We looked at a lot of texts on showing how it is that God loves us and when he loved us. So, but here's another one, 1 John chapter 4. 
and this is love. Not that we have loved God. So get that. We didn't love God. But he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what is love? What is love? In this is love. Not that we loved him. So we are not the definition of love. What is love? God sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That he'd be the propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Wrath absorber. Meaning he takes God's wrath on himself for our sins. And he takes it on himself, suffers that death, so we'd be free. So we'd have life in him. Jesus left heaven when we did not love him. Romans 5 says he does it when we were rebellious and we were counted as enemies. And that's when it says, at the right time, Jesus died for us. That's the right time. Isn't that crazy? Like, think about it. When's the right time for you to love your neighbor? When's the right time for you to love your spouse? When's the right time for you to love your brother or sister? When's the right time for you to love the person next to you at school? When they're nice, right? When they love me. And James is saying, no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about God loving us when we have absolutely no inclination at all to love him. That's when he loves us. And so James is calling us as Christians, that's the love that now we show one another. It's the love of the gospel that has saved us, and now we love others that way. He's calling us as Christians that we are to reveal the love of the gospel through our lives. So let me ask you, does your love for others, for your spouse, for your children, for your parents, for your coworkers, for your neighbor, for the poor, for the disabled, for those who are different than you. Does it reflect the gospel? Does it reveal the gospel? Does your love for others reveal the kingdom of God? Do people see King Jesus because of how you show mercy to others? And I think in some ways, we we, we say we can all be guilty here, right? But I think to pause also and just say one thing, that we see on a regular basis, and, and, and the Wallows testified of this today, is that there's a love here in this church. And, and every person that we bring up here to, uh, to, to bring into membership, and, and without coercion or manipulation or oppression, because remember, we don't do those, but without coercion, we simply just say, okay, here's the question we're going to ask you. How did God bring you to Timberline? We, we just want you to answer that question. And, and, and they say two things, and they say one a lot more than the other. They'll say, they'll say the emphasis on the word, which I thank you, James, for saying that. But more than that, it's the love that we have for one another. It's the love that we have for one another. And God has done something radical in this church. And if you're new here, then I know you've already felt it. There is a love here for one another because of the gospel. Because God has been working through his spirit here that we would demonstrate that love. And it is evident here. Like your love, the way you serve, the way you meet, the way you greet, the way, the way you, even during our greeting time, I mean, you guys take way too long for greeting time. <laughs> you guys throw off our, our, our service time every week, and it's awesome. Because we truly love one another. We meet with one another. We stay late after service. We come early. Why? Because we want to see each other. I pray that you have felt that today because that's nothing that I have contrived. That's nothing the elders have contrived. That's what the gospel has brought about in this church. And what takes place here is supposed to go out in every part of our life. 
But now there's a danger that we're facing here. That there's a danger that we can become complacent, and there's a danger that we can actually become guilty of disobeying. Because we never are to get to the point where we say, okay, love people like Jesus, check, and now I'm done, right? But we're to always keep growing into that. And James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So whenever we're reading the Bible, we're in danger, right? What's the danger? That we're going to deceive ourselves because we're not going to obey. But James says, you can't just hear. Your hearing must lead to obedience. So every time we come into God's word, he's wanting to expose sin in us. So it's okay that we feel a little pierced at the moment going, okay, there's more partiality than I thought in my life, and that's a little bit more worse than what I thought it was, okay? That's good. We're supposed to feel that. And then, and then what God's word does also, it leads us towards greater obedience. That we say, okay, I'm going to keep following him. I'm going, to keep, I'm going to confess my sins and keep trusting in him that I'd be made more and more like him. So at this moment, we're to say, okay, wherever I'm at, help me to, to love others more as you have loved me, God. Help me to love others as I love myself. Help me to demonstrate this royal law, this law of liberty. So James does give us a warning and explanation. So we'll start with the explanation, then we'll go to the warning, and then we'll put it all together. In verse 13, we read, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So the explanation, to speak and to act in accordance with the law of liberty is to show mercy to others. That's James's whole point. We're to, we're to give mercy. So we're to speak and act as those who are to be judged, uh, or for our judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. We know that we've been given mercy in Jesus, if you've believed in him, so we're to show mercy. So that, that's the explanation. Speak and act in accordance with the law of liberty. What does that look like? Give mercy. And mercy is an act of love. Now here's the warning. If we don't show mercy to others, then we'll not be given mercy, but we'll receive judgment. You see, the evidence that we've been freed from the bondage of sin is that we're citizens of God's kingdom, and that Jesus is our king, and that we give mercy to others. So real quick, what is mercy? This is helpful because uh, I think we have mercy and grace, and sometimes we just go, well, that's like loving people, right? It is. Mercy and grace is all an outflow of love, but mercy is particularly God's goodness given to those in misery. All right? it's, it's God's goodness given to those in mercy. So when we're merciful to others, we're being good to those who are in mercy in, or in misery. And because of sin, all of humanity is in misery, Right? So any act of love we do for them is, is an act of mercy. Because we've been given mercy, we're now called to give mercy to others, meaning the poor, the orphan, the widow, the alien, the stranger, the minority, the disabled. The grace and mercy of God that saves us, that transforms us, saves us and transforms us, that we would show grace and mercy to others. Do you know that? So here, here, here's the big thing, and, and take this away. What God has done to you, he's now doing through you. Do you see it? What God is doing, what God has done to you, giving you grace, loving one another, being merciful towards you, he's now saying, now that's what we do for others. We now show love and grace and mercy to others. So, let me give an example from the Bible. Matthew chapter 6. You can look there later, but Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. 
This is the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, this is what we read in Matthew 6, verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you see the dependence upon that relationship? Now, we're not going to get all into it. Jesus is not saying that we have to earn his forgiveness by forgiving others. If I forgive 20 people, then God will forgive me. But he's saying, if we forgive others, we can have confidence that God has forgiven us. Does that make sense? Therefore, if we don't forgive others, then that shows that we haven't been forgiven, and thus we are under judgment. So James and Jesus are both teaching us the same truth. What God has done to us, he's now doing through us. He has poured out his mercy into our hearts so that our hands and feet would be moved to show mercy to others. You see that? Mercy has been poured into your heart so that our hands and our feet would be moved to showing mercy to others. Do you see why partiality, favoritism, discrimination is at such odds with the Christian faith? See how it's such odds? It's, it's in violation of all that God has done for us. It opposes the royal law. God has shown mercy and love and grace that we would show others. And so if we are partial, showing self-love only, then we're at odds with what God has done for us. Hear this. Our faith is made visible by loving others through acts of mercy. We show the world the majesty, the glory of our King, Jesus, when we love others with mercy. So why is it important that we show up early and stay late to talk with people here at church? Why is it important that we greet everyone who comes in, not just some people? Why is it that we ought to serve those who are hurting inside and outside the building? Why is it we ought to have a, a waiting list outside for the uh, sign-up for the soup kitchen, which, by the way, uh, I was let known today. Uh, I think we have soup kitchen next week, and we have lots of, pop, lots of openings. Um, so if you would like a, a very... Uh, practical way on how to apply this today. You can go sign up for Soup Kitchen, and next week you'll head down to the church downtown, and you'll actually be able to, to serve and to love those who, who have needs. Why is it we can use our money and time to alleviate the hurts and pains for others? All of this is because of what our King Jesus has done for us. He's given us mercy. He's given us love. He's given us grace. And now His love, His grace, and mercy is flowing through our veins that we would give testimony to the gospel with everything that we do. And notice the last words of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The only way, the only hope we have to escape the judgment of God, his fiery wrath for breaking his perfect law, is his mercy in Jesus Christ. That's the only hope we have. We all deserve judgment. What saves us from that judgment? The mercy of Jesus Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we know that everyone stands guilty before the king. Everyone hangles, dangles, dangles over the fiery judgment of God because of sin within our hearts. So what hope does this world have? What hope does our culture have? What hope does our neighborhood have? It's you and it's me. They need us to share with them the good news of the gospel. And we are clear every day, every day that we're here, we, the people must hear the gospel to be saved. Your feeding the homeless does not communicate the truths of 
the gospel, meaning it doesn't tell them Jesus is the Son of God who came and died for us and rose again three days later. But what your acts do is they reveal the love of the gospel. And we need to know something. Um, The culture that we're in is becoming increasingly disinterested in Christianity. They don't want to hear the gospel. Our culture used to see Christianity as moral and safe. Now they see Christianity as unmoral and unsafe. They see Christianity as a danger to society. So when you begin to speak the gospel, don't be surprised if people start heading for the door. In fact, I was meeting with someone here uh, one time at a coffee shop, and there's people all around us, and at the moment I begin to talk about the gospel and the church, uh, this, this person at the next table looked at me in just total disgust. You know, it was just like random. You're just like, oh, something really weird just happened. And so, you know, but we keep talking, and she kind of looks back a couple other times. Finally... Um, after another couple of moments, she stands up, shakes her head, grabs her ears, and stomps to the other side of the coffee shop. I had no idea what to do at that moment. Um, that's our culture. Partiality, anger, is what drove her away at that moment. She has no love for Christianity. She has no idea how enslaved she is to her sin. The world doesn't know that they're in bondage to self-love. They think that's just how we're wired. And because of sin, it is. But God sets us free. I hope you know that. God sets us free from the bondage of self-love that we could love others with the gospel. Look, the only way people will hear and believe is we speak the gospel, right? We got to speak it. But we must realize that for some people, The only way they will listen to the gospel is once we have showed them the gospel through our lives. We must win them with our actions so we can win them with our words. Actions don't replace words, but they got to work together. And I want to encourage you, if you're here as a believer, you have the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God in you. The gospel has saved you. God's grace and mercy and his love is flowing through you. He's calling us into obedience. So I pray just as we close here, let's pray uh, and ask for forgiveness in any way that we have, partiality and favoritism, discrimination, and let us just pray that we would better know this gospel, that we'd better know the truth that has set us free, and let us be bold and beginning to share that with more and more people. Let's not be worried what, what we get out of it. Let's just be worried on Do we get to show the love of Christ here? And let's show others the love of Jesus so that they would do what we read in 1 Peter 3.15 and ask us for the hope that we have. Why is it you act this way? And then we just tell them, it's because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we just thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have saved us by grace and mercy, acts of your love, that you have saved us when we were unloving. You have saved us when we were your enemies. You have saved us when we were rebellious. And Lord, I pray, I pray that your gospel, your love, your mercy would not only transform us, but shape how we love and interact with others. Lord, I pray that our houses would be places of mercy 
Our workplaces would be places of mercy. Here at the church, your mercy, your grace, your love would abound in every conversation and every relationship. Lord, I pray that as we move towards our annual meeting, where, where we're talking about money and all those other things, that, that mercy and a grace and love would just abound in those conversations, that we would not be guilty of partiality. And Lord, I know that there's times we will. I pray, convict us that we might confess quickly, and may we live for your grace. Lord, we're thankful for all that you've given us in Jesus. May, we, may our lives give testimony of your mercy and your grace. In your name, Jesus, amen.